Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there! Welcome to History in Retrograde. This is the podcast where we use the ancient art of astrology to help us better understand the past. I'm your co-host, Chandler O'Quinn, and joining me in the studio is my mom! Hi, Mom! Hi, Chandler. It's very fun to be in your studio. We haven't done this since season one, I think. Right, yeah, it's been a while. Uh, are you ready to begin another grand experiment? I'm ready, let's go. All right, let's give it a whirl. Okay, let's do that. And I just want to say hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening in the United States, in Texas, in San Antonio, Texas, and around the world. We're so happy to be here for you. Uh, yes, uh, we're so happy uh, to have all of our listeners from all over this great nation of ours and all over this wonderful world. And uh, for those of you, if this is your first episode of History in Retrograde, uh, we'd like to wish you welcome. We've got quite the party going on over here. Uh, the way that we do things is that uh, in a moment, I will give the astrological birth data of a random historical figure to my mother. She will then input that data into the back computer, and out will come the astrological birth chart, where all the planets, moons, and stars were at the moment that that person was born. She will then give her uh, best attempt to uh, do a blind reading of this chart, uh, see what she can find out about the person's personality traits, fortunes, characteristics of this mystery history guest. I will then reveal to her who our uh, historical figure is, give a little background about the person, and then uh, we will come together at the end and figure out how accurate the chart was at predicting what that person would do. And without any further ado, let's begin. Okay, let's go. This is a male. Yes. Uh, born on the 24th of November. Uh-huh. 1713. Wow. Okay, do we have a birth time? 1 a.m. Oh, <gasps> we have a birth time. One exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is very exciting. Where in the world? Spain. España. <gasps> we have ancestors from there, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Portugal. There it is. All right. And the town? Petra. 
Petra. I don't see it. Uh, then just go with Mallorca. <gasps> Mallorca. All right. So this is a male born on November 24th, 1713, 1 a.m. in Mallorca, Spain. All right. So this person has Virgo rising at 20 degrees. We'll go through their whole chart. They have Sun at 1 degree Sagittarius, Moon at 18 degrees Aquarius, Mercury at 12 degrees Sagittarius, Venus at 28 degrees Libra, Mars at 10 degrees Capricorn, Jupiter at 4 degrees Pisces, Saturn at 10 degrees Virgo, Uranus at 16 degrees Virgo, Neptune at 4 degrees Taurus, Pluto at 6 degrees Virgo, North Node at 17 degrees Sagittarius, Chiron at 15 degrees Aquarius. Very, 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 very interesting. All right. So, uh, this person having their um, ascendant at 20 degrees Virgo, uh, puts all of their Virgo planets in their 12th house in front of their first house cusp of 20 degrees Virgo. Um, I am reading tropical uh, astrology with equal houses. And so all the houses, all the house cusps will be 20 degrees. Um, they do not have any planets in their first house, but having Virgo rising, Virgo rising people, if this is the correct birth time, which I hope it is, uh, Virgo rising people um, are usually very clean looking. They are alert and they are um, aware. Uh, they're very, they're mercurial in a way that Geminis are not because Mercury rules Gemini and Virgo. But Virgos are very data oriented. So Virgos will kind of know everything that's in the room, everything that is happening because Virgo is an earth sign and uh, Gemini is an air sign. So Gemini is going to be more about, you know, the thoughts that are flying around in the room. And Virgo will also be very involved in the conversation, possibly even holding court, but they will be more grounded in what's happening. They will be most likely very well put together, clean, hair combed, have a very attractive way about them that is um, spot on, you know, like be like, ooh, that's a very snappy jacket you have there, sir. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. And not so much in an egotistical way, but a way that is like, um, I put myself together because I respect other people, that kind of thing. Then we have Libra on the second house cusp and we have Venus in Libra at 28 degrees in the second house. So first of all, Venus in Libra is going to make this person, I would assume, very romantic, very um, aware of roses and and, and, and gifts and, and things like this. Very, very aware, very in tune with their own 
likes and dislikes, their, their romance, their love, how they love. Very in tune with this. Okay. Um, then the third house cusp is Scorpio, but because that house cusp is at 20 degrees, their sun, Mercury, and north node in Sagittarius fall in their third house. So this is a person who is very able to communicate. And not only are they able to communicate, fiercely communicate, not scarily fierce, but, but really well, really should be really good at communication because it is their third house, which is ruled by, you know, Gemini and Mercury. And that is about communication and their sun, Mercury and North Node all in Sagittarius fall in that house. But also this Sagittarius way, which is ruled by Jupiter, which is so much communication, so much information, so willing to share their information with you, you know, and, and really have good information. Um, very interesting. Now we go to the fourth house cusp, which is Sagittarius, but again, their Mars and Capricorn falls in the fourth house. Now, let me just say, Mars is, I'm, I'm pretty sure it is exalted in Capricorn. Mars and Capricorn, for as much as we know about Capricorns, Mars and Capricorn is one of the most interesting placements for Mars as far as, especially a male is concerned, because it is how they are passionate. They are known for being some of the most passionate men ever. They are very, uh, they tend to be very, um, how can I put this? <laughs> Studious in how they go about their romantic activities in order to be thorough and uh, they are, um, they take their time. They take their time falling in love too. They actually will, um, not necessarily just give their heart away, but they also can be very monogamous. Uh, but again, this person it has Venus in Libra. So this is going to be a situation where this could be a very ardent lover, but likes to love a lot of women because of their beauty. Um, fifth house cusp is Capricorn, but we have our Chiron conjunct moon within the orb by degree. Chiron is at 15 degrees and the moon is at 18 degrees Aquarius in the fifth house, which is the house of romance. Something about this person seems like they should be very romantic. I don't know if they are or not, but maybe that's an aspect nobody knew. But um, uh, Chiron conjunct moon in Aquarius has to do with healing groups of people because it's Aquarius and Chiron is the wounded healer and it is directly conjunct the moon. Healing? Healing? female groups of people. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm way off base with this guy, but there's something about this guy 
with his cavalier self and his Venus in Libra and his Mars in Capricorn and his moon conjunct Chiron in Aquarius in the fifth house, the house of romance. Very, very, very interesting. And um, then we go to, uh, and I also want to say that this person has their Mercury conjunct their north node by degree in Sagittarius. So there's something about their direction, their actual direction that has to do with communication and how they communicate and the way they communicate. There's something about this. Um, Jupiter is in their sixth house in Pisces. Jupiter in Pisces is very, very, very imaginative, very dreamy, very poetic, very artistic in the sixth house, which is their work. So maybe they were an artist. I don't know. An artist with a lot of girlfriends. <laughs> I don't know. Their seventh house cusp is Pisces, but a good portion of their Aries house falls in their seventh house. So, um, uh, they could be, I don't know. They have no planets in there. I'll come back to that. They do have their eighth house cusp is Aries and they have Neptune in uh, Taurus there. And Neptune in your eighth house, that's a lot of illusion and imagina- imagination and and um, Venusian qualities to your imagination. And um in the eighth house, which is legacy. And, um, I mean, this goes along with that Jupiter, this Jupiter in Pisces being extremely, what a wild, amazing imagination. And then Neptune in Taurus in the eighth house, which is like really expanding that imagination or, um, uh, just all of the Venusian things, but with it being Taurus, it's very sensual. It's very earthy. It's very, um, like, um, it's also very romantic. It's very romantic. Their ninth house is ruled by Taurus and they have their Midhaven in Gemini in their ninth house. So there is something about, philosophy and education and higher learning and travel and um, uh, um, communication. Again, communication, communication and romance, communication and romance. There's so much of this. But then having this moon in Aquarius and Chiron in Aquarius in the fifth house of romance, but also in you know, theater and, and children and, and all the things that rule Leo, but it's like the sun, I mean, the, the moon, which normally comes out at night, having the moon in your fifth house is almost like having Leo rising. You have this way of bringing light to people, um, and groups of people because it's Aquarius, which also gives you kind of an open-mindedness about your emotions, you know? You have this, all these romantic things, but you're open-minded about your emotions. You're, you're not so, 
uh, bogged down in them. Tenth house cusp is Gemini, but there are no planets in the tenth house, but it would make the tenth house be, um, again, communications in, in, in the, uh, in the career. Uh, eleventh house is ruled by Cancer. Uh, the cusp is Cancer, which would put a lot of, um, healing and nurturing into groups of people, even though there's no planets in there. Twelfth house is ruled by Leo, but in the twelfth house, the house of karma and past lives, we have Pluto conjunct by degree Saturn conjunct by degree Uranus in Virgo, in the twelfth house. Virgos. That's a lot of power for Virgo in the twelfth house, which is karmic. Whatever they're doing is karmic. And they have ways of doing it to her. Not only is it the lesson, the lesson from Saturn, but the power of Pluto and the surprise aspects of Uranus in Virgo, which Uranus is not comfortable in Virgo. Virgo likes things to be organized, and Uranus is a, a wild card. Uranus comes from out of the blue, and then the lessons are connected with things that happen out of the blue, and somehow there's power involved with that, and it's all karmic. It's all whatever this person came in to do. This is a very intriguing person. Um, do you have any questions? Oh, well, first of all, am I even close? I think so. I think that um, we'll discover as we go forward that um, there are a lot of different things that you can mean by romance. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean a one-on-one -on -one relationship or a partnership. There, it's a love and a, an emotional love. Yes. So I think that um, when you think of it that way, things will make a little bit more sense. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of the things make sense. Okay. Do you have any questions? Uh, what is his relationship to religion? Well, he has Taurus on his ninth house cusp. So we look to the ninth house to talk about religion, dogma, and his midhaven is in the ninth house in Gemini. So there is some sort of very um, dedicated, I want to say dedicated, because Taurus people can be extremely dedicated and, and, and very stubborn. Um, with the ninth house, which is, you know, ruled by Jupiter and Sagittarius, which is higher learning and all that. But having your midhaven, which is your career, I mean, this person could be some sort of religious communicator. Because it's in Gemini, the midhaven. What kind of teacher would he be? Well, uh, this person has Sun conjunct Mercury conjunct North Node in Sagittarius in the third house. Sagittarians can be excellent, excellent teachers. Uh, they have a vast amount of knowledge. They, they're kind of magical with that because they're ruled by Jupiter. So it's so much. Then, uh, this person has Taurus on their ninth house, which could make them a dedicated teacher. And this person also has Saturn, the planet of 
the teacher in their 12th house in Virgo. So they could be a really super organized teacher. I mean, they have aspects for this. How would he feel about travel? Well, he's got Taurus on his ninth house cusp, and his midhaven is in the ninth house in Gemini. So the ninth house also represents travel. And this person has sun conjunct, well, not by degree, but by sign. Sun at one degree uh, Sagittarius, Mercury at 12 degrees Sagittarius, and North Node in Sagittarius at 17 degrees conjunct their Mercury. This person could travel talking. But I would assume that with all that Sagittarius, they like to travel. What would he look like? Well, if this is correct, and this person does have Virgo rising, he would appear the way I described him. You know, really, he should be put together. He should be clean. He should appear, you know, like... I'm not sure whatever the styles were at this time, but he would be quaffed, he would be shaved, or his beard would be, you know, dressed. He he wouldn't look like John the Baptist. He he wouldn't. He would he should not have twigs and things in his hair, if this is right. What would his attitude be towards foreign cultures? Again, this person has a sun at one degree Sag. Mercury at 12 degrees Sag and North Node at 17 degrees Sag. This and Midhaven in Gemini in the ninth house, which is ruled by Taurus. People who have Sagittarius placements normally are very interested in foreign cultures. And having Moon conjunct Chiron in Aquarius also puts them very open minded uh, in a good way. Unless they're, you know, that dark side. But I don't think that is with this person. This person seems, I don't know, I think I would like this person if all these aspects are the good side. What is his relationship to violence? This person has Mars and Capricorn. It doesn't matter what sign you are in all your other signs. If your Mars is in Capricorn, what happens is... Uh, when it all starts to happen, you'll notice that they get quiet because they are more of a seether. They will seethe. You won't know what's happening because they've gone dormant. But what's going on right now is probably not good for you if you're the one that's causing the violence because uh, they're figuring out a strategy on what they're going to do. Um, this person doesn't have any Aries in their chart. They don't have any Leo in their chart. They don't have any Scorpio. I'm talking about planets. They have the houses, but they don't have the planets. I would assume that if you wronged this person, they are going to intellectualize themselves into a retaliation that you will not like. Especially with the uh, Sagittarian placements in the third house and having Sun conjunct, Mercury conjunct North Node in Sagittarius because that's a lot of fire to be seething if that makes any sense at all. What is his legacy? 
Well, this person has Neptune and Taurus in the eighth house, so there's definitely a legacy. Neptune is imagination and uh, creativity and um, psychic ability and all the things that rule Pisces and and um, you know imaginative, but in in Taurus, which is um, earthy, earthy imagination creativity. Are there any other final first impressions that you get from the chart? Well, I think that this person is probably very amazing, and I hope they're a good person, because I, and I hope I know who they are, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested to find out who this is, because uh, their chart is very appealing to me. I like it. All right, well, I think we are ready for our summary of our findings. So the first thing you said is that he would be very clean-looking, yes. very alert and aware. Mm -hmm. He could be mercurial, uh, data-orientated. Mm -hmm. He is aware of what items are in a room. Mm -hmm. He is grounded. He could be very attractive, well put together. Mm -hmm. And he puts himself together as a sign of respect towards others. Mm -hmm. He could be very romantic, aware of roses and gifts. Uh, he, uh, in his time, he, he is in tune with his likes and dislikes. Mm -hmm. uh, he is very able to communicate and do it well. Mm -hmm. uh, he is very willing to share information. Uh, he is passionate. Uh, he would be studios, studious and thorough about his love. Mm -hmm. uh, he would take his time falling in love. Uh, he could be very monogamous, an ardent lover. Mm -hmm. uh, and he could love a lot uh, because of beauty. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, is healing groups of people, mm -hmm. and uh, specifically female groups of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, his direction is connected to communication. Mm -hmm. uh, he could be very dreamy, poetic. Uh, he could be like an artist mm -hmm. with a lot of loves. Mm -hmm. He has lots of imagination mm -hmm. and illusion. He could have a wild imagination. Mm -hmm. uh, and his imagination could expand. Uh, but it's all connected to a grounded, earthy, uh, sensual world. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, could uh, communicate about philosophy, education, and travel. Mm -hmm. uh, he is bringing light to groups of people. Mm -hmm. There is an open-mindedness about emotions, mm -hmm. and communicating is his career. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, would have powerful karma, uh, and he is very dedicated, a religious communicator. He is an excellent teacher, possibly magical in his teachings. Mm -hmm. He would be super organized as a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, travel and talking are connected in his life, mm -hmm. and he would like to travel. Mm -hmm. uh, he would be really clean, put together, quaffed. He is very interested in foreign cultures and open-minded. Mm -hmm. Uh, he has your seal of approval. <laughs> if it's good. Uh-huh. Uh, he 
when violence comes, uh, whether against him or against loved ones, he would be quiet mm -hmm. and begin to seethe. Mm -hmm. He would strategize and intellectualize his retaliation. Yes. His legacy is connected with creativity, imagination, and uh, specifically grounded and earthy creativity and imagination. Yes. Uh, is there anything that I've left out? No. If this is all correct, and this is his actual birth time, then those things would be correct. Um, the only thing that would change any of this is if we don't have the correct birth time, and all of these things would, you know, go around the wheel. And we, they would all fall into different houses. But as they stand there, that's how it looks to me. And I'm very excited, and I hope I know who this is. Uh, so, you are looking at the astrological birth chart of Father Junipero Serra. Okay. Uh, who is uh, the main person uh, involved in the... Uh, founding of the missions in California. <gasps> oh. Well, I think that he had a good purpose in mind. I don't think he was... Clearly, this person was not doing this to be a bad person. You know what I mean? Like, we all know that didn't work out so much for the Native Americans anywhere. That was not good for them. But I believe that this person had... A mission in his heart that was pure. I think he meant to be good. Like, this was good for him. He, he meant good, you know. I don't know what to say about the rest of that, but it happened, and there it is. Uh, so, uh, this is actually, he's, a, he's actually a saint. He has been canonized. Uh -huh. uh, he is the uh, only uh, Hispanic saint to be canonized for work that he did in North America. Wow. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, Sarah was born uh, Miguel Jose Sarah Ferrer uh, in Petra on the island of Mallorca. Uh, he was born to Antonio and Margarita uh, Sarah, and they were farmers. And in this early part of the 1700s, it, there were there was a great drought that was happening, and there was a lot of famine in the area. Uh, by the time that he was seven years old, uh, he was tending the fields with his father, um, but he also spent any spare time that he had in uh, the Franciscan Church of mm -hmm. San Bernardino. Mm -hmm. uh, and he learned quickly and uh, was able to uh, read, write, speak multiple Spanish dialects, Latin. Uh, he uh, was gifted in Gregorian chants, had a wonderful singing voice. At the age of 16, uh, all of the uh, people at the monastery and his parents recognized the talent that he had uh, and uh, his intellectual capability and uh, sent him uh, to uh, Palma, uh, which is the capital of Mallorca, which is an island, uh, and uh, to study philosophy. Uh, at 16, uh, he requested entry into the Franciscan order. Uh, he did so on September 17th of 1730. Uh, he spent one year uh, studying uh, everything that you would need to in order to order uh, or enter the order. Uh, and he did so at the Conventos de Santa Maria de Los Angeles de Jesus. Uh, and then when he was 17 years old, he took the vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience, mm. so officially entered into the Franciscan order. Uh, when you do so, you take on a new uh, name, and he chose Junipero, uh, who was uh, the rather colorful companion of St. Francis Assisi. Uh, 
Uh, you're not allowed to become a father until you're at least 24 years of age. So there was seven years of intense study from the time he was 17 until 24. Uh, and at that time, uh, he became a father, and then he stayed a little longer, and he earned a doctorate. Uh, and he became a very respected academic. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, taught at uh, the Lulian College in Mallorca. Uh, but all throughout this time, in his 20s and 30s, uh, he has this longing to do the things that he's teaching about. Mm -hmm. uh, he's not involved in a mission. There's no one to really evangelize to in Mallorca. Uh, but he's reading about all of these people who are in the New World, who mm -hmm. are in uh, New Spain and what is now Mexico and South America uh, and uh, all the things that they're up to. And, and he, he wants to do that as well. He wants to uh, uh, teach the Native Americans about uh, Catholicism and Christianity. Uh, so at the age of 35, which was starting to get a little old to do such uh, uh, grueling and uh, tiresome work, um, he applied uh, to be a missionary. And uh, his parents were still alive. They were in their 70s, and he knew that he would most likely never see them again. And uh, he writes a letter uh, to them saying that surely they would encourage me to go and not look back. Uh, that the call of an apostolic uh, preacher is the greatest calling that they could want for their child. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, he left uh, for what is now Mexico on August 29th of 1749. Uh, when he gets on the boat, uh, he is described as being 35 years of age. He is described as being medium height. He was five foot two. Mm -hmm. uh, he had dark complexion, a scant beard, and dark eyes and hair. Mm -hmm. Uh, the ship arrived in December of 1749. It arrived at Veracruz. Uh, it was then uh, you'd need to get from Veracruz to Mexico City along the El Camino Real. Uh, the uh, Spanish army uh, offered to uh, have horses brought in uh, to take the group of uh, preachers to Mexico City, and all of the rest of them took this offer. But Sarah was devout in what St. Fr Francis Assisi said, that you have to walk everywhere. Oh, my goodness. So uh, Sarah walks the El Camino Real from oh, Veracruz to Mexico City. Uh, during the journey, uh, he gets what he says is a mosquito bite on his leg, uh, and it becomes uh, infected, mm. and he does not leave it alone. He keeps scratching at it, uh, and it eventually becomes an ulcerated wound oh, that he no. would have for the rest of his life. Uh, so uh, he makes the journey from Veracruz to Mexico City. And he requests to have another noviate year, uh, meaning another year as a novice. Uh -huh. So he wants to be at the very bottom of the hierarchy within the mission in wow. Mexico City. And they deny this request because he is already a, uh, a philosopher and a respected professor. Mm -hmm. But even though they deny the request, he continues to do menial tasks mm -hmm. for these men who are much younger and inexperienced than him. Uh, or they have more experience, but he has more of this academic training. Yeah. So he does these menial tasks. He cleans up after them. He mm -hmm. serves them food mm -hmm. um, while he's learning uh, everything that there is about being a missionary in New Spain. Uh, he then gets an assignment to Sierra Gorda, which was 100 miles north of Mexico City, uh, and uh, he evangelized to uh, the uh, Palme people uh, for eight years. 
after eight years, uh, he is recalled back to Mexico City, and there is a talk of him maybe going to the missions uh, in Texas, near what is now San Antonio. Uh, but those missions uh, become too overrun with Comanche Indians, and so it is not a safe place to send anyone. Yeah. Uh, so uh, instead, uh, he uh, sticks around Mexico City for a while, and then in 1767, uh, the uh, Viceroy over New Spain uh, expels all Jesuits from uh, running the missions in Baja, California, yeah. uh, and replaces them with Franciscans. Uh, so at the age of 54, um, Sarah volunteers to go and help with these missions in Baja, California. Uh, and this is where you start getting into the conflicts between the two arms of the Spanish government that are going into these missions. Because it's not just the church. The church has to be protected by the military. So the military and the church don't always agree on the best way of running these missions. In the time between when the Jesuits left and when the Franciscans arrived, the military took over all operations of these missions. Uh, and they uh, were sometimes very brutal uh, to the Native Americans there. Uh, when he first gets there, there were uh, five or there were 7,000 uh, Native people, and that in just two years, 2,000 were yeah. killed. Yeah. Um, a lot of them from disease, not necessarily violent punishments, but uh, this was sort of the conflict between uh, the uh, military and the uh, religious people in Baja, California. Uh, and so one year later, uh, in 1769, uh, uh, people uh, are starting to talk about going to Alta, California. So that is going to be what we now know of as the state of California inside of the United States. Mm -hmm. Baja being what is part of Mexico on the California Peninsula. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were no missions up there. Uh, once you got, the, the really, even before you even got to what we now know of as Tijuana, there wasn't anything. Wow. Uh, so uh, this was really going to be going into the frontier. Uh, this was to protect the Spanish claim. There were already Russian expeditions into California. There were um, uh, possibly the English and the French would be interested in settling there. So the Spanish wanted to make sure that they had a claim on this western coast of North America. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, they send... Uh, 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 Sarah up with a uh, military detachment uh, as well as other uh, Franciscan uh, monasteries and fathers to go uh, up into this new realm. And uh, what I think is really interesting is that Alta California was the most populated and the most diversely populated area in all of North America. Wow. Uh, which is really interesting because the state of California is one of the most populated right. and one of the most diverse today. Yes, that's true. Uh, there's something about that, uh, always being around 70 degrees, yeah. uh, that attracts people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, he, uh, they start, uh, their mission, uh, he of course, following in the steps of Assisi, uh, walks uh, from, he's walked from Mexico City to Baja, he's now going to walk from Baja up into Alta, California. Wow. Uh, so he starts in March and he arrives in what we now know of as San Diego in June of 1769. Mm -hmm. uh, June 28th specifically is when he arrives there and he uh, makes a mission uh, there uh, in San Diego. And uh, of all of the missions that are made uh, under Sarah, this was the one 
one that caused the most amount of problems. The Kumaye people in the area were the ones least interested in converting to Christianity and uh, really wanted no part of the mission. Uh, so he is there in this first mission that he's uh, really uh, in charge of, and the Kumaye are not necessarily coming to him. Uh, the military detachment under Portola, they continue to go up north. They're trying to find a land route to get to the Bay of Monterey. Uh -huh. Uh, so uh, that is some 600 miles away. Right. So they leave in August. And so they leave uh, Sarah and a few uh, people in the military there in San Diego. And their conflicts with the Kumaye people, uh, they're a lot of miscommunication. Even the native people that um, uh, Sarah had brought with him from Baja, California, had no idea how to communicate with the Kumaye people. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there are a few uh, mishaps that happened. Then in January of 1770, uh, Portola and his group come back. So they've now gone all the way up, and now they've come all the way back down to San Diego, oh. and they say that we couldn't find the Bay of Monterey. Okay. They had no way of finding it on land. Uh, and they say what we're going to do is we're going to stay until March, and then we're going to make our way back to Mexico City. This is all pointless. We don't need to do any of this. Right. Uh, and, uh, Sarah pleads with them and says, wait until March 19th, please wait until March 19th. At that point, the ship will come back with supplies. Mm -hmm. I know it. Mm -hmm. The ship is going to come back with supplies. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Portola gets everything. The person in charge of the military gets everything ready to go. Uh, and mo the morning of March 19th comes and there's no ship. So they're getting everything ready to go. Yeah. And then at three o'clock on March 19th, they see the sails wow. from the horizon. And so one of the ships comes back with supplies to staff the mission. Wow. What I also think is really interesting about this is that March 19th is also the typical date of when the swallows return <gasps> to San Juan Capistrano every Ooh. year. That's not the same mission, but it's a little bit north, and that's very interesting. That is very that interesting. Uh, so uh, the ship San Antonio returns uh, with supplies, and they are able to continue their journey. Uh, so uh, from 1770 through 1783, uh, Sarah establishes nine missions, uh -huh. uh, going all the way from San Diego to San Francisco. Uh -huh. Um, once they establish the one in San Francisco, Portola decides that he's ready to go back to civilization in Mexico City. Yeah. Uh, so he was the main military commander, and he got along better than anyone else did with Sarah. Um, once Portola leaves, uh, he puts his second-in-command, uh, Pedro Falles, uh, in command. And Falles had no respect for any of the indigenous people. Uh, and, uh, had many, and, and not just that, he, he didn't care what his soldiers did. Whereas Portola might punish his soldiers if the soldiers were violent towards the indigenous people, yeah. uh, Falles would not do that. So yeah. abuses start to pile up and pile up yeah. all across the California coast. Yeah. Uh, so much so that Sarah decides that he has to do something about it. Yeah. So he walks 
all the way back to Mexico City. Oh my goodness. And there he delivers to the Viceroy a written account of all of these abuses. Oh there are 32 points in it. Yes. It is over 8,000 words. Oh. And in it, he, does, he claims that these native people are human beings and they have a certain set of rights given to them. Yes. It is known as a Bill of Rights now. Yes. Um, and this is about the treatment of these people, that they deserve to be treated with respect and dignity. And this is something that happens 150 years before Native Americans would be considered human beings under the American Constitution. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so this, the Viceroy does take um, uh, seriously. And so he sends Sarah back. So Sarah walks all the way back to California uh, with the pink slip for Fayez. Uh, so uh, he gets uh, taken back, which he's probably very happy to go back to Mexico City after all this. Yes. Uh, and so then uh, Fernando Riviera is put in charge mm-hmm. of, of the military operations, and he's about the same as Fayez. Oh, no! Uh, so what they start doing is, uh, Father Sarah gets the missions to be separated from the presidios so that the military forts are taken away from the actual mission, uh, of, uh, where the, uh, church was. Mm-hmm. So if you go to many of these uh, cities in California, the presidio is located in a different spot mm-hmm. from the mission. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times it's miles away across a valley to try and uh, keep the military influence away mm-hmm. from what was happening at the missions. Uh, so, uh, Sarah sort of makes his, uh, headquarters at a mission near what we know as as Carmel, California today. And all throughout this time, there's this sore spot with San Diego and the Kumaye people and that they just have not come to this first mission, the Mm -hmm. one that was supposed to start at all. Uh And, uh, there uh, was some more abuses against them. And so the Kumaye people decided to uh, revolt against the people in San Diego. And they did that on November 4th of 1775. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Kumaye uh, led a rebellion against the mission. Uh, they went into the church and they burned and they pillaged and they took everything from there. Um, one of Sarah's uh, greatest friends and companions, uh, Father Jaime, he uh, left the church and he, he pleaded with them. Uh, uh, to love God, my children, love God. The Kumaye people beat him till he was unrecognizable, oh, and they no, shot him with no, 18 no. arrows. Oh, no. Oh, no. When Father Sarah was told about this, people were expecting him to have a very uh, emotional reaction to yeah. this, but he was very cool under uh, yeah. all of this, and he actually uh, gave thanks to God because he said that now that the soil has been wet with blood, the mission will be a success. Wow. Um, there were some more retaliations, uh, both against the, uh, the army, against the uh, Native Americans, the Native Americans against the army. Um, at one point, uh, Francisco uh, Rivera actually uh, went into a church and took one of the natives out and killed him. Um, and, and so uh, Sarah uh, went on another campaign uh, to have uh, Rivera removed from power. Uh, this time he did not actually go all the way there. He just wrote letters. 
letters. Yeah, he's a little old by now. Yeah, <laughs> um, walking all the way. So uh, I think it's important to talk a little bit about how the mission system worked. Uh, so uh, this was all set out by the Catholic Church to convert uh, these Native Americans uh, to Catholicism. And it was also to set up these self-sustaining communities. Uh, so uh, the natives a lot of times would come on their own accord. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it would be pushed in, but a lot of times it was on their own accord, and they would be taught Christianity, they'd be taught um, work. So agriculture, a lot of these people are hunting and gathering people. Mm-hmm. Um, agriculture, actually cultivating your own crops, uh, it, it does make you ha- make you healthier because you're much more in control of your diet that way than the whims of hunting and gathering might be uh so uh teaching them agriculture and all these different trades how to work a loom and make fabrics and uh, a lot of it was to make things uh, uh that would be needed for uh the monastery for the community um, also, uh, during this time, uh, Father Sarah is credited with uh, the beginning of wine culture in uh, okay. in California. All California wine can trace its beginnings to Father Sarah, who began uh, making wine uh, at the uh, missions. Um, now, uh, as part of the mission system, there were punishments that were given out to disobedient um, Indians. Mm-hmm. Um, and this being the 1700s, a lot of these would be corporal punishments. There would be beatings, there would be yeah. floggings, yeah. there would be whippings. Yeah. But uh, I think it's important to also note that they're not doing anything to the Native Americans that they aren't doing to themselves. The Spanish people, the Spanish army, if someone was disobedient, they would be flogged and whipped. Um, there was beatings and public humiliation as a, that's just the way that the world was in the 1700s. Yeah. Um, and uh, as, um, gruesome as it is to say, it's nothing that Father Sarah didn't do to himself. Yeah. Um, so he was a, uh, practicer of self-flagellation. Oh, okay. So he had whips, uh, that were made with cat of nine tails and he would whip himself yeah. as a way of purifying, uh, himself from sin. Um, It's also important to note that as he uh, goes through and teaching Christianity, he uses a lot of the native symbols uh, in uh, the way of communicating Christianity to these people. So you go and you see what they are talking about. The first altars look like they were all filled with shells and minerals that were important to the native people as a way of communicating uh, that what the way that they think about these shells is the way that uh, they would be thinking about uh, the Virgin Mary and Jesus. Um, In his later life, uh, he continued to visit all of the missions that he helped found. Uh, So continuing to walk the 600 miles from San Diego to San Francisco. Uh, And uh, he uh, would confirm the baptisms there. Uh, So uh, the natives would get baptized and then he would come in as the president of the uh, whole mission system and confirm that baptism. Uh, So as doing that, he confirmed over 5,000 300 baptisms in Alta, California. Uh, He uh, died in August of 1784 at the age of 70 uh, at uh, San Carlos uh, Barrero in uh, Carmel. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also think it's interesting that that's where he made his headquarters, and I don't know about you, but every time I think of Carmel, I remember that their their most famous mayor, 
Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Clint Eastwood was the mayor of Carmel, California. Uh, so his legacy, the, all of the settlement of California, from San Francisco to San Diego, the map that we have today is all based off of him on where he put the missions. Um, the, uh, the track uh, for settlement uh, that would follow through for the next uh, few hundred years. He converted thousands of Native Americans to uh, Christianity. Um, and really brought Western civilization to uh, the uh, West Coast. For better or for worse, um, the beginning of agriculture and uh, all the things that we, uh, the cities and all that is really tied to what uh, he was uh, doing. Um, in the By the time you get to the 1920s and 30s, people look at Sarah as the pioneer of pioneers. As we're looking backwards to the Old West and we think of these uh, uh, rugged people who crossed over a continent, uh, uh, a lot of those people were Anglo people, were people of English descent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it left a lot of Hispanic people feeling that they were left out of this. Right. But... There were Hispanic people from Spain who were in California hundreds of years before, and they really looked to Father Sarah as a sense of pride for them, right. that he was the pioneer before all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, there were lots of statues put all over California. There's even a statue in the U.S. Capitol to Father Sarah. Uh, in 1988, Pope John II beatified him, and then uh, in 2015, uh, Pope uh, Francis uh, canonized him, so he was an official saint. Um, there are a lot of criticism, uh, especially today, that comes from, uh, uh, and, and a lot of people would say that it's unjust criticism to Father Sarah, uh, that he was the head of the system that brutalized and uh, hurt a lot of these Native people and changed their lives forever. Um, a lot of things, is that earned criticism, is it not? When you look at what he did himself, all he ever talks about is how much that he loves these people he, right. uh, and that he wants them to see the light of God. Right. Um, he uh, talked about uh, uh, the the brutalization of them, uh, mm. saying how wrong it was. Mm. We know how brutal they were treated because he wrote it down yeah. as how bad it was. Yeah. Uh, I see a direct correlation between him and Bartolomeu de las Casas, who was doing the same thing in Columbus's day. Um, and any account that you see, no one has found one where he's the one holding the whip. He's right. the one who is brutalizing the people. Right. A lot of times it was happening and uh, he didn't necessarily speak out against every single instance, but that's just because things people were violent back then it's yeah. the 1700s um but still in california today uh, a lot of people are starting to take down the statues of father sarah um and uh, it is uh, a bit of a controversy because um he did preside over the system and started it on the other hand the system was going to happen either way you look at right. it um, at least Father Sarah was there to try and help these people right. uh, to whatever extent he could. Uh, so uh, that is uh, the life of uh, Saint uh, Junipero Serra, and I think that a lot of the things that you uh, pointed out here make a whole lot of sense. I think communication, mm-hmm. education being his purpose, imaginative. Not everyone would think of taking the native symbols and bringing them into uh, Christianity. Right. Uh, so uh, he was very imaginative in the way that he uh, brought uh, Christianity to these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
very unique uh, and yeah, lots of travel. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of things here that uh, are very uh, true for what his life was. Well, absolutely. And now understanding who he was and what he did, I understand why you're saying this. Um, the, it's the way, the way he did it. For instance, Virgo, oh boy, Virgo can be a lot. And this, you know, being super stubborn in how he was going to walk everywhere, because walking is work, right? And this is very work-oriented. This Pluto conjunct, Saturn conjunct Uranus by degree, like dominoes, is going to be about the work and the level of excellence in the work and the punishment of yourself for not doing the work right or whatever. That can be really Virgo. Like Virgos can be really self-criticizing. I mean, they can also be very critical of everybody else, but man, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to criticize themselves usually first. And that's all in the 12th house, which is karma. Okay. Then you have all of this uh, Sagittarius in the third house of teaching and communicating and, um, and, 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 Clearly, this Mars and Capricorn was, you know, keeping his temper in order to create a better way, the way that he thought he could make it happen. And then Chiron in Aquarius, even though it wasn't necessarily around women, but we don't know who he was protecting for sure. You know, he could have been protecting a lot of women. Who knows what they did? We have a pretty good idea. And it wasn't good. Um, Jupiter in Pisces can be very religious, very religious. It, it removes that land of illusion and comes with the dogma of that Pisces used to be ruled by Jupiter. So here you have Jupiter in Pisces that used to be ruled by Jupiter, you know, in the sixth house of work, your religion is your work, right? And then uh, Legacy, Neptune in the 8th house. Neptune in Taurus. Um, like literal, like literally doing the religion, like building the missions, right? That makes sense. But um, yeah, now that I hear what you're saying, and I do need to relate that I lived in Los Angeles area for 10 years. And there was one trip that... Uh, I took to Santa Barbara and toured the missions. And I don't know if I am an empath in that way, but at one point I just stood in the mission and tears were just, I couldn't control my sadness. I was so, so, so sad in thinking of the misunderstanding, the not able to comprehend what was happening to them by the Native Americans. And realizing that they had to conform or they would be tortured and killed. And it, it, it broke my heart. It was in this beautiful place, this beautiful place where, you know, when you're dealing with someone who's good, like I'm going to assume that this man really had the best intentions. He really wanted to save these people in his dogma of his religion that says, if I don't go and save these people, they will not go to heaven, you know? And that is a very 
you know, Christian Catholic way, which, you know, is, is, is to be honored in what they're doing. But these native people were used to, you know, worshiping the sun and the air and the land and the animals. And in a way they were both worshiping the same thing, you know, but it's, it's, I don't know, whatever. But I mean, I feel, I feel that this man was really, 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 really trying to do the very best job he could. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that he, he, in his mind, he was doing the best he could do. The, there was a time when, uh, the mission that he was in was under attack, and uh, there are only four soldiers outside to uh, fight off the uh, Native Americans. And he went into the chapel and he prayed that none of the Native Americans would die before they were baptized mm -hmm. so that they could go to heaven. Wow. See, that's very Gurgonian. <laughs> that's, like, that's like, your work is superlative there's nothing more important than your work you know and uh and and you know that's that he meant but he meant to do the right thing and um i can definitely appreciate that and when him. you talk about you know uh, that there's a feminine quality to it mm -hmm. um he looked at these people and he saw a lot of them w were naked and he mm -hmm. said that they, it was like adam and eve mm -hmm. and uh in a lot I think in his mindset, that would be something more feminine, something worth protecting, mm -hmm. uh, is uh, to try and be that person who protects them from the brutalization of the army, which is definitely yeah. masculine. Yeah. So uh, looking at that, um, that's his work, is to yeah. try and protect them not only from the military in this lifetime yeah. and protect them from everlasting damnation in the next lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. That's serious. That's a lot of Virgo right there. That's some, that's some serious Virgo, but that's also very generational that Pluto conjunct Saturn conjunct Uranus, those planets. Well, Saturn only takes two and a half years, but Pluto and Uranus and Virgo, that's a thing. And, uh, it was the thing of that time, mm -hmm. you know, very interesting. Really good subject, Chandler. I'm I'm very interested. I mean, I'm assuming this happened when you went on your trip to California. Right. So now <laughs> I can write off my trip. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> well, you can write was, off your trip it was anyway. for work purposes. But, Absolutely. Yeah, I went to San Juan Capistrano. I saw that, that that's the only chapel that still exists that he actually uh, mm. preached in, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, saw the the where the 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 I don't think it's called a vat, but whatever this brick lined area where they would stomp the grapes to mm -hmm. make the wine mm -hmm. and um the the whole thing uh, that 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 happened there mm -hmm. that was uh, i think the eighth uh so almost to the last mission that he established mm -hmm. there um but uh, yes I, I i did and yeah that's where i first heard about him and, yeah. and that he was this this whole idea that there's only been one person of hispanic descent who has been canonized for things they did in north america wow. um that's uh pretty cool and and they actually they uh, uh the the pope 
did so uh, without the necessary miracles that mm-hmm. are usually needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so usually you have to have two or three miracles that happen after you die. Oh. Um, and uh, there was one uh, miracle that happened in the 1960s mm-hmm. where a woman specifically uh, prayed to Father Sarah over a period of months to cure her leprosy, oh. and uh, she was cured. Oh. Um, but outside of that, there were no other major miracles. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, because of the work that he did in his lifetime and the legacy of California, mm-hmm. um, which can all really be accredited to him, mm-hmm. um, uh, that's why Pope Francis uh, canonized him in 2015. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, well, uh, that pretty much wraps up this episode of History in Retrograde. We'd like to thank you all so much for listening. Uh, we have uh, the links to our social media posted in our show description. We also have a link to our PayPal account. Every little bit helps us in producing a better quality show and expanding our audience. Uh, we also have a link if you would like to be your very own Mystery History guest. <laughs> we can make that happen. Uh, just email Chandler's mom at historyandretrograde.com and uh, she will get with you about all the details on how to uh, have your chart read or have someone else chart read and uh, we also uh, have our YouTube channel and it is being populated every <laughs> week so at least uh, once a week you'll see a, a video from the first season of History and Retrograde all those years ago uh, uh, starting to go up there and uh, starting to get even more so hey maybe some of you came here because you saw the YouTube video or the short uh, so uh, we're so happy that uh, you're being able to see that That's awesome. And I'm having a wonderful time going through this memory lane of editing these videos and putting them up onto YouTube. And I can't tell you the joy there is. I don't know if you guys are doing it. I don't know who's doing it. But to put up like, you know, Mary Shelley and within 24 hours have almost a thousand views of the short is amazing. So whatever you guys are doing, keep doing it. And if you're here now from the YouTube channel, thank you for being here. Um, it's really fun. If you have not subscribed to the YouTube channel, please do it and it'll help us get more viewers and we can share the show with a lot more people. I do love chatting with you guys. You're all very, very wonderful. And I, I really love that so many of you are studying astrology and you're interested in your charts and your family's charts and there's just so much happening right now. It's very exciting. Thank you all for being there. We just love you. Uh, yes, uh, thank you all uh, so much. As always, in conclusion, as long as your houses are in order and your stars are aligned, everything will be just fine. Everything is going to be just fine. Thank you so much for listening. We love you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.